Amen. Amen. Christ in us. Christ through us for the sake of the world. That is our hope today. It's a hope not found in what we can do on our own, but rather it's found in what Christ can do with us. Especially regarding the the challenges that we find ourselves facing in our world right now. With that, I wanted to begin this message not just by filling the time with words, but by filling a, a piece of our time with prayer. I wanted us to, to take a moment to pray for our nation as we continue to find ourselves divided over the issue of racial inequality. I think it's very important that we kind of keep this conversation going because the hope in doing so is that it will ultimately lead to real healing and real change, but we, we have to keep talking about this. Because as we have said so many times, racism of any form is a violation of God's design, it is a violation of God's truth, it is sin. And although I, I totally understand the well-meaning nature of the phrase, love sees no color, I think a more accurate phrase is love sees every color and rejoices. Because that's how the kingdom looks. God's kingdom is described as a place of every nation and tribe and tongue. That is the beauty of God's kingdom, every color. And until we see that lived out around us, we are not whole. I was thinking this week, I was imagining what it would be like in my life. What, I thought, what if... If I could take my life and if every moment of my life was exactly the same, same parents, born in the same places, if every experience I had was identical down to the the most minute detail, everything was the same except I went through those experiences and my skin was a different color. That I was dark brown instead of pasty white. And I thought, would my life experiences be different if that had happened? And I knew without a doubt it would be. And until that changes, we have so much work to do. We have so far to go to get to that promised land. So I wanted to invite us to actually take a minute, literally a minute, 60 seconds. I want the folks online to do this as well. I invite you to do this as well. And we're going to take a minute of prayerful silence to intercede, to invite the wisdom of Jesus, to trust God for healing in our land over this blight. And that in the discomfort of that minute, it will feel like a really long time to you, I I know it will, but in the discomfort of that small period of silence, that we would remember the ongoing real life struggles of our black brothers and sisters. So with that, we put 60 minutes, or not 60 minutes, wow, you're like, wow, that's gonna be something. We're gonna put 60 seconds on the clock and a minute of prayerful silence. Go.
it would be easy at times like this to kind of wonder about everything in the world. Wonder what's next and how will things get better and what if things get worse? Which is today why we begin a series called Our Living Hope. And, and I believe this series is incredibly important because of the unprecedented times that we all find ourselves living in. I think all of us can attest to the realization that many of the things we used to hope in, used to count on, used to see as immovable fixtures in our lives, those have all changed. They, they kind of evaporated overnight. Three months ago, who could imagine a world where homeschooling was the most popular avenue for education? Who could have saw that? Who could have imagined a world where scientists were the foremost advisors on fashion trends and accessories? Who knew? and a world where toilet paper would become a rare and exotic luxury item. Who saw that coming? It was like a switch flipped overnight and everything changed. And so with that, we can find ourselves then left either with a hope deficit or with a hope surplus, depending on where and on who we place that hope in. And what God's word wants to move us to in this time is to get us back to a hope that does not fade, a hope that does not disappoint, that does not die, a living hope that is found in the person of Jesus. So that is where our series will take us as we travel through the book of 1 Peter, discovering the framework of the hope that God has set in place for such a time as this, that's what we're gonna do. And here's the first thing I would point out. We have a living hope because God chooses us. God chooses us. First Peter one, verse one and two is where we're gonna start. Let's read it together, big voices, go. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. All right. The word elect is important there. It's the word eklektos or chosen. It, it means anything especially chosen, like a chosen fruit, like I, I want that piece of fruit, a specially chosen article. It's this idea that your hand selected. There's nothing like being picked, is there? There's nothing like being wanted, being chosen. I think yesterday, it was a beautiful day. In fact, our facilities director, Logan Flaming, got married to a person on our, our Kid City ministry team, Gianna Marillo. Her, her new last name is, is Flaming now, which is really cool. So they got married yesterday, and it was a beautiful wedding, a beautiful venue. And I, I just love weddings, and I always cry. And Gianna's lived with us for a year and a half, so it was kind of like giving a daughter away. It was, it was something. But... Um, but I remember at different points in the ceremony, both of them used this phrase. They said, I choose you today. I choose you for my life. And there was so much power in that, look into, that they would look into each other's eyes, I choose you today. Well, this passage is saying God not only knows us, but he chooses us. That is mind-blowing, is it not? 
I mean, it's one thing to choose somebody when you don't know them, you know, you just imagine them to be great, you just idealize them, but to know them and to choose them, that's amazing. That's what God does. He sees every flaw, he sees every sin, he sees every lie, every deficiency of our lives, and he still chooses us. It's like he looks at us on that big imaginary playground in the sky and where it's the schoolyard pick and he sees us there standing against the wall and we got like a broken leg and there's gum in our hair. We got like an arm in a cast. There's food in our teeth. We have a vacant stare across the playground just like, ooh. And And God looks at us and he's like, oh, I choose you. You're the one I want. That's amazing, and if you don't believe me, look at the first part of this passage. The author, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Think about that. Peter, an apostle. That should also blow our minds. Peter, if you recall, was part of Jesus' inner circle, and really that's about where his pro column ended, right there. Everything else was cons. Everything else was negatives. He was an uneducated, common fisherman from Galilee. He had a backwoods accent. He, he, he came to faith basically because his brother Andrew lived out this idea of finding and telling and bringing. Uh, we see it in John 1, 40 and 42. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard, that John, or who, who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. Now get this, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon, that's, he becomes Peter, and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. If you've ever thought this idea of evangelism or our outreach was complex, here it is in a very simple form, find, tell, bring. Go find someone, relationship, Tell them about Jesus, what Jesus has done in your life, and then bring them to a Christ-centered community, a place where they can learn more about Jesus and meet Jesus. Maybe it's a life group, maybe it's a, a church service, it's a connection point. That's how we reach people, and that's what reached Peter. But Peter, as we know, was a bit of a ready, fire, aim kind of guy, okay? He... Peter's mouth always tended to run faster than his mind. Have you ever known anyone kind of like that? Yeah. He was generally the one who spoke up first and often the one who wished he hadn't. Even in that, it, it appears that he's kind of the spokesperson for the disciples. Peter was the one who had... I guess the bravery enough to defend Jesus in the garden by drawing a sword and attacking one of the guards, swiping off his ear, but then Jesus had to fix that little mistake. But he was also cowardly enough to adamantly deny Jesus three times when people asked if he knew him. It was Peter who stood on the mountain and saw Jesus with Moses and Elijah in the transfiguration. It was also Peter who walked on the water in response to the call of Christ, but same guy started to sink after a while. We also know it was Peter who gave up after the crucifixion. He went back to fishing. But thankfully, he was the first one out of the boat 
when he saw Jesus on the shore cooking breakfast. Maybe he thought he'd get a walk on the water again. I don't know. It didn't work that time. And it was Peter who stood up in faith on the day of Pentecost, this backwoods, common, loudmouth fisherman who was full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith, and he preached a sermon that the Spirit used to convict hearts and bring salvation to at least 3,000 souls in a day. I tell you all of that to remind you that if Peter can be chosen, so can you. And so we see Peter write this letter about 34 years after all of that took place. And the church had exploded throughout the Mediterranean rim. And here, this somewhat aged Peter sits down to write to a group of Gentile Christians in the region of what is now modern-day Turkey. And he writes what is often referred to as the lovely letter. And here within this lovely letter, we see this big idea. That in Jesus we have a living hope that rewrites and redefines our identity by rewriting and redefining our past, present, and future. What that means is everything I have walked through, everything I am walking through, and everything I will walk through can still be used for God's good in my life. Starting with realizing that God somehow in his goodness chose me and he chose you, and he's still choosing you even today. You know, there's something that happens after you've been married a while. In fact, Paul and I had our anniversary this week, uh, 26 years, and um, you know, you, you sometimes go back and look at your original wedding picture, and it's like, whoa, we were young. You know that feeling like, whoa, like I can't believe they let us do that. Were we driving even? I mean, it was, you look so young. And, uh, and Paula was absolutely beautiful then. I think she is truly more beautiful now, even so, even than she was then. But, but I look at myself, and you, you see yourself back then, and, and understand that when I say this, the fact that I got to marry Paula was a total work of grace. I totally get that. I mean, I, I, she was way out of my league, so I totally get that. But I can look back at that wedding picture, and I can kind of see, like, okay, I can see why you would choose me then. Okay, I can kind of see it. I mean, I was like 15 pounds lighter. I had no wrinkles, I had no bags under my eyes. I had a, a dark brown mullet with no gray. I mean, who doesn't want that, right? That was amazing. I was bright-eyed, I was nothing but innocence and potential, not jaded by life, you know. I had all my shots, I mean, I was, I was a catch. I was something. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so, although it was still miraculous, I could at least understand a little bit why she would have chosen me then. But you know what means even more? is the fact that she chooses me now. She still chooses me now. Even though she knows my flaws more than any other person, she chooses me now. I think sometimes with Jesus, we say, yeah, I get that you chose me before I, I, before I made all those mistakes, but back when I was more innocent and I was less tainted and I had a few less scars and regrets in my life, yet the truth of this passage reveals 
Not only did Jesus choose you in your past, Jesus chooses you in your present. Right now. And that brings a living hope for our future. We have a living hope because God chooses us. That's the first thing. Here's the second. We have a living hope because God changes us. 1 Peter 1, the second verse, the second part of it, let's read it, big voices, go through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Okay, we'll stop there. As Peter writes to all these Christ followers who had been scattered throughout the region, I want you to understand the context. He's writing from Rome in about AD 67, which placed this communication in the, in the days immediately following the outbreak of Nero's persecutions. In short, Nero was an emperor of Rome, and he was essentially crazy. He was a madman. He actually burned Rome to the ground. Most people knew he did that, but he blamed the Christians for it anyway, and that blame stuck. And so Rome and its citizens began to persecute the Christians. They were beaten. They were crucified. They were starved. They were fed to hungry wolves and lions. They were dipped in oil and set on fire as human torches. Now that's persecution. So amidst that struggle, the Christians disperse throughout the region. Let's get out of here. It's called the diaspora, the scattering. And it is to some of those scattered exiles that Peter is now writing. These are a people living in a precarious present with an uncertain future. Maybe we understand those feelings a, a bit more now than we ever have before. For example, right now in life, we're kind of relearning how to relate to one another. I was raised, when you met someone for the first time, you looked them in the eye and you shook their hand, right? Now that's like the most intimate thing you can do. You know, I was like, what? You don't shake their hand. Not on the first date, you know. Like parents sitting their kids down, there will be no shaking hands till after you're married. Do you understand that, right? It feels precarious. We're relearning everything. Imagine what these folks felt. These are people who were, at first they were not a people when they were apart from Christ. And then they became a people in Christ and are now a persecuted people because of Christ. So knowing that, can you imagine how much was changing in their lives? How many things had shifted, where they lived, how they lived, how they interacted with others? We understand a bit of that now, don't we? Certainly not the same as the persecution they experienced, but that, that same sense of being off balance that sense of not being sure what to expect next, of, of not being able to plan, not being able to kind of anticipate what the next season is like. We get that now, don't we? That so many things around us have changed and yet there is a greater change that God is trying to accomplish and it's this. That the great change taking place in the world around us should lead us to God's greater change in the world within us. He wants to do something with our hearts. If there has been a prayer in my life that has been more often than any other in this time, it's Lord, don't let this season of time be wasted. Don't let us waste this. 
Let all these points of pain and crisis bring us closer to your heart. Let them change us as individuals, as a church, as a people. Saying to God, you have permission to wreck me and rebuild me. To get rid of the things that were never what you intended. I know God God is desiring to do that because I'm watching it happen through this time. I'm watching relationships transform and marriages transform and people's individual trust in Jesus transform. I'm watching it in my own life. There is a fundamental shift in God's church. And we can fight that by trying to get back to the way things were, or we can embrace that by seeking Jesus for the way things are supposed to be, how he wants them. Our church community here, although still bearing many of the distinctives that we've had before, it's changing dramatically. And it's so good because God is changing us so that we can embrace him in a new way. And we can embrace that change because of this. God wants to use hard things to produce good things. He always does. And that process that I just described is called sanctification. It's a big churchy word. It means to be set apart. And that process doesn't happen all at once. I remember in Redmond, uh, there was a season that my parents bought kind of a little plot of land because we had a horse at the time. And so they bought it. In Central Oregon, the land is just like rocks and sagebrush and dirt. That's all you, you have. And that's all this land was. And, and so they built a little house on it. And they had this land. So my dad decided he wanted a big front yard, giant front yard, huge. It, it, it seems massive to me now when I think back on it. But I remember having to put that yard in which meant we started with the big rocks. And so we could see those big rocks and we take the wheelbarrow out and, and one rock would fit in the wheelbarrow and out goes the big rock. Okay, that was easy, I saw those. And then it was kind of the medium-sized rocks. You know, you can fit maybe five to 10 of those in the wheelbarrow and you take those out. Those were fairly obvious. And then there was the hundreds and thousands of smaller rocks that you saw after that. And you had to put those in the wheelbarrow and you got rid of those. And finally the, the pebbles, you had to get those out until it was just smooth dirt that you could put grass seed on and water and make it grow. That is a picture of how God sanctifies us. He comes into our life and he starts with the big rocks. There's an obvious one, let's get rid of that. That's out of here. But then once those are gone, there's all these medium-sized rocks. Oh, there's a bunch more. Let's put those in the wheelbarrow. Let's deal with that. And it's not until those are gone you see the hundreds and thousands of other smaller rocks that also need to go because the closer we get to Jesus, the more stones we find. That's what sanctification is. It's really us growing up into who God intends us to be, changing us from infant to toddler, from adolescent to adult in the kingdom. But see, the goal of sanctification is not to become more grown up, Instead, it's to become more childlike, more trusting, more innocent, more hopeful. And the great hope we have is the God who began that amazing work of sanctification in our life is actually faithful to complete it.
That's what we say yes to in the sanctifying work. We say, God, I give you permission to change me because we know that we have a living hope when God changes us. That's the second thing. Here's the last thing. We have a living hope because God chastens us. Chastens us. Not a word we use a lot, but it started with CH, so I had to put it in here. Um, but I'll explain it to you in a minute. First Peter 1, second verse, the last part of it. Let's read it. Go to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now, for a lot of reasons, the, the word obedience isn't a super popular word in our culture when it comes to relationships, right? Perhaps included in that is the imagery of like doggy obedience school or maybe of overbearing teachers or drill sergeants or husbands who used it wrong, all those kinds of things. Certainly this idea of obedience has been twisted at times by sin. But among the essential hope that we find in this passage is that God loves us enough to tell us no. God actually loves us enough to tell us no. This is what it means to be chastened, to be disciplined, that God has a best in mind for us. And if we are considering moves outside of that best, God will always encourage us to turn back, to repent, to come back to him. This is part of God's love. Hebrews 12, 6, it says, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Again, God loves us enough to tell us no. The other day, um, Mavis the grand dog was over at the house and I noticed that Mavis the grand dog was chewing on a power cord. And I thought to myself, I think she's fluffy enough. I don't think she needs to chew any farther on that. And so what did I say to Mavis? Because I love her? No. No power cord for you. Yet we look at God when he says stuff like that to us and say, God, that's so rigid. Oh, God, you're being so narrow-minded. Oh, why don't you be more open? Don't tell me no, God. Yet God is saying, you're chewing on a power cord. And I'm here to tell you I love you too much not to tell you no. This is the point of our obedience. It is a submission to the will of the one that I trust to know better than I do. But see, we don't like being told no, do we? You know, um, several months ago, I planned a family vacation that was going to happen in July. It was a, a trip to Hawaii. I thought by then, you know, COVID would be a thing of the past and everything will be done. And so, so I planned it. I was excited. And, and certainly the plane tickets were refundable, but, which was good because, uh, because then I found out that Hawaii closed for July. Evidently, they found out I was coming. They're like, we better shut this place down. Nobody's getting in. <laughs> and, uh, and I just got to tell you, I didn't like being told no. Hawaii told me no, and I, I didn't enjoy that. You know, it was disappointing to me. Yet I also know that, that I can trust that God has a best for me and, and a best for my family and, and a best for Hawaii, evidently, without me. And, and, and that best is really wrapped up in this 
tiny little word, no. See, one of the things I've learned to rejoice in in ministry is when people tell me no. They say, I can't do that ministry or I can't lead that or I can't do that event. And I rejoice because that no is part of God leading them to his yes in something else. Saying no to this, this over here means I can say yes to that over there. We have to stop seeing no as the world's worst two-letter word. Even in this great big no that is in quarantine and shutdowns and restrictions, even in that no, we, we can look through that lens and we can see through God's eyes to his yes. We can see the yes to closeness and yes to maybe greater margin in our life, and yes to family, and yes to solitude with him. All possible because in our living hope, God actually chastens us. I'll wrap up with this. We have all watched some of the things we used to hope in fade away and even disappear. It is time for all of us that we draw near to the hope that is alive. G.K. Chesterton said this, hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. It's time to hope again. Not to hope in our plans or our, our circumstances or our ability. No, we all know those things fail. It's time to embrace the living hope. And that is a hope in Jesus. Let's pray together. Today, for those online and here in the room, I think there's two groups of people that the Lord wants to minister to. First group of people is those who would say, um, I just want to put my hope in Jesus for the first time, or maybe for the first time in a long time. Maybe you've even gone to church for a while, but you'd say, I really haven't put all my hope in him, and I want to do that today. And so I just want to give you that chance in this room and online. If that's you, I just invite you to raise your hand. Say, yeah, that's me. Yeah, I see your hand over there. Yeah. Yep, just want to, yep see your hand right there. Yep, yep. Just want to give you that chance today. I'm looking upstairs too. Yep, yep. Okay. I want to pray with these folks first. Jesus, I thank you for those that are just in this moment saying we want to put our hope in you. And, and, and maybe they've, they, they had their hope in you a long time ago and have drifted. Maybe this is a new, brand new relationship or maybe, maybe they're saying, I, I just want to reaffirm that relationship with you. But for each and every one of us today, God, we pray that we would find your hope in a fresh way. We pray you'd come into our lives, that you'd forgive us of our sins, that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit and let us now live our lives with a hope that is centered on you. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name. Now there's a second group of people I would love to pray with. Again, online and for those in the room. And it would be those that would say, I'm just here to say, I wanna hope again. I want to hope in a new way. I want to trust God in a, in a fresh way. I, I, want to, I want to lean into him in a new way. Even in this season of so much uncertainty, 
I'm going to put all my hope in Jesus. And you want the, the grace of the Lord to help you with that. If that's you, I just invite you to raise your hand all over this place. I want to hope in new ways. Yeah, yeah, so many of us. So Jesus, that is our cry. That um, somehow in this process of hope that you invite us to, that we would not grow up in, in cynicism and all those things, but we would grow down in childlikeness. That we become people whose trust in you is greater, it's more absolute. That our, that our faith is, is real. And that when we look at the world, we look at the world through the lens that you see it. The lens of your love and grace for all people. So Lord, help us today to hope again, especially in a world that is, is becoming so uncertain and so cynical and so jaded that we are to be a people of hope in the midst of that. So let us walk that out today. We thank you for loving us first. We love you today in return. And it's in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen.